week of November 5th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 637, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jace Sperling Reich. And on the picket line, I'm Michael Gill. Strike, strike, strike. No, no, Which I am not. Oh. I'm right. I'm not at the actor's strike. I am outside Naris, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. They're going to be announcing the Grammy Awards on Friday. And I have a sinking feeling we're not going to get a nomination, Sperling. So I'm jumping ahead of the game and starting to strike the headquarters right now. They're going to have the Grammy nominations on Friday. We better be in there or I'm on the picket line. Well, the good news is we're only really going to need two picket signs. I mean, let's face it, nobody else is going to pick it for us. That, that's, that's true. We'll save on, well, we'll be con- conserving cardboard. So we're doing our bit for the environment as well. God knows we didn't need those signs at the World Series games to say, go Texas or go Arizona. It was the lowest rated World Series in history. An average of 9.1 million people viewed the five game series as Texas, the Rangers beat the Diamondbacks to win their first title. The people in baseball say, hey, don't read anything into that. Okay, just just don't. <laughs> they did have a good season. 70 million people uh, bought tickets for the regular baseball season, and I think that might include postseason. So that's back above the 70 million mark for the first time since 2017. And really the decade before that, between 70 and 78, 79 million was sort of the go-to number. That's in-person that attendance. That's, that's right, of course. Yes. So they're saying yeah. people are going back to baseball. We've shortened the game by 20 minutes to half an hour, which is great. And it just happened to be a World Series where it didn't build into a lot of drama. They won in five games and they weren't, I don't know how Texas cannot be a big market team, but certainly Arizona, I guess, is not. And that just kept it a viewership a little bit low. So we're keeping an eye on baseball. We're keeping an eye on the strike. We've got a little news about that. We can't wait for the Grammy nominations on Friday. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, and people wait, fingers crossed, for our episodes, don't they, Sperling? They can't wait till we come out. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, we, we posted uh, very quickly after last week's episode. And here's why. We were afraid when we recorded last week's episode that they would literally, as we pressed publish, settle the actor strike. Not that we we want them to settle the actor strike, sure, but sure. our fear was not having mentioned it during the episode that they would settle it. And then our episode comes out and it's like, oh, the actor strike continued. We look kind of foolish. So we tried to get it up as quickly as possible. So sometimes Saturday... I'm sitting around. All of a sudden, I get this notification on my phone. This is Showbiz Sandbox is ready for you. The next episode is ready for you to download. I'm like, wait, what? It was, should have been <laughs> like on Tuesday. What the? And then I looked. I said, well, that must be a mistake on my phone. I go, I look. No. I, even though we published last Tuesday, I don't think it went out. And I don't know what is going on. So my apologies to everybody. But we were available on Tuesday. Luckily. Thousands of people reached out to us to say, hey, where's the latest episode? Yeah. I haven't checked their voicemail, (laughs) if that counts. By the way, uh, you know, I I would say that we would do a trailer for this episode, but then we'd have to tell you everything that happened in it. Because lately, I've been watching trailers for like The Fall Guy, and then I just watched one, The Family Man with Mark Wahlberg, the Apple TV movie. They all, I don't know what it is with trailers, but they're like literally giving away the whole movie. They're like, here's the beginning. Here's the middle. Here's how it ends. I'm just like, what's the point? They've been doing that for 50 years. (laughs) But it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. I don't know about that. I don't know if it's gotten worse. All I know is I like to stay on top of the latest news and that's why I go to gas stations. You go to the gas station and you pull up and there's a little video embedded in the damn gas pump. I'm going to curse people. A video is embedded in the gas pump and it starts to play. At one point, you used to be able to mute it, but now you can't in many stations. And they just play some stupid video with like, uh, what's Maria, whatever her name is from the TV, the movie ads. Maria Bartiromo. Maria (laughs) Bartiromo. Yeah, and she's doing lifestyle tips and there's word of the day. And then there's Cheddar News, at least at one of my gas stations. Cheddar News, look forward to what's next. Apparently, Cheddar News is still around, but some deal collapsed for the content provided to those little video screens. Every time I pull up to the pump, I hear the same video that's been on there. You want to know how long it's been on there? The news story of the day is Elon Musk is pulling out of his deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion. He says they didn't provide enough information. Twitter says they're going to hold him to it. 
Cheddar news. <laughs> Look forward to what's next. <laughs> yeah, that's how. By the way, it is. FYI, he's right because it's now worth half that <laughs> after a year after he bought oh, it. He knew he'd made a mistake, and oh, I don't think I do want Twitter. But uh, oh well, I don't know if he would admit that now. But that's what's by the happening. Way, before anybody writes in, it's Maria Menounos, not Maria Bartiromo. Yeah, Maria Bartiromo is a newscaster, the uh, the yeah. business newscaster, while Maria is the one who you see if you go to movie theaters and watch all the trailers. Before that, they have a faux magazine-style show, and she's up there, and she's certainly an appealing personality, offering useful tips about how to turn, you know, ice cubes into delicious popsicles and treats like that. I don't know. Anyway, but uh, that's how you find out what's happening at the news. You go to the gas station, but if you want to find out the entertainment news, you come to Showbiz Sandbox. What are we going to talk about this week? And by the way, this is... Is like our trailer where we tell you literally everything that's going to happen in the podcast. Yeah, we shouldn't do that. Now that I'm oh complained about it just five and a half seconds ago. Right. Well, I'll well, do it well, anyway. And okay. happily, we will not get together at the end. <laughs> so it's yes, not like a Hallmark movie. It's not a meet cute. No. See, see what happens later. Okay. Lately, and that's a, a, a teaser for, for our box office segment. But Oops. this week, in Showbiz Sandbox News, or Showbiz this week on Showbiz Sandbox, I should say, is it is Grammys week, Michael. So we know mm-hmm. that Taylor Swift enjoyed the biggest album debut of her career. We know that. Of course, it was an album from 10 years ago, but who's counting? Kate Bush, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this Friday, the Grammy nominations will be announced. And by the way, that's probably all we're going to say about that because, you know. We, we don't have any predictions. Unfortunately, the actor strike continues, and we really hope that sentence is outdated by the time you hear this podcast. The studios and streamers made their final and their best and their 100% last. Absolutely, they're not going to submit another offer. offer. Uh, and the nanny is pouring over the details before giving her, their responses. Screen Actors Guild, of course, were we're joking around. She's the Fran Drescher, president of the Screen Actors Guild. Fingers crossed it deserves a yes, by the way. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at Spotify's change to its royalty system. Michael and I still will not be paid, by the way. We, we did the <laughs> math and uh, we won't be paid. They're tracking fraud, folks gaming the system with 31 second tracks, the rise of artificial intelligence, and hoping to funnel more of the money they pay out to, you know, those, those uh, people that we refer to, Michael, you and I, as real artists not the fake artists, or as I like to call them, fartists. Will it work? We'll find out. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. But first, I'm sure he'll comment on my new term, fartists. I'm trying to forget it already. We're looking at box office from around the world. It's for the week ending November 5th. We're the only people who cover the entire week's box office. Why ignore most of the week? People go to the movies seven days a week. We give you the biggest numbers because we're the most accurate. We get By the way, Todd, this just in Taylor Swift called. She said, people go to the movies on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Huh, She's I didn't know that. She's very smart. It's very smart to book her movie only on weekends after that initial week so that people can party together and you don't want to see it Monday afternoon in an empty theater. That was a very smart decision. And we're looking at box office around the world and the number one movie is again Five Nights at Freddy's. It made another $87 million this week. It's at $217 million worldwide. Is there a toy tie-in via Chuck E. Cheese? There should be. At number two around the world is Killers of the Flower Moon. That made $31 million. Moving up a notch, uh, Scorsese's like, yes, yes. Uh, that's now made $119 million worldwide. Uh, not sure when it's coming out on Apple, but it will be soon. But it looks like they're trying to get as much money and as much play from the box office as they can. And yes, at number three around the world is Taylor Swift, The Era's Tour. It's made $28 million this week. This is its third week in theaters. If it had made $28 million on its opening week, it would have been in the top five highest grossing concert films of all time. But it's now at You know, it made $13 million in, in North America this, this weekend. And I thought to myself, well, that's a great opening for a concert documentary. Exactly. That's the, that's the point <laughs> exactly. we've made every week. That would make it yeah. a top 10 highest grossing concert film of all time. Just from that, oh, oh, you know, that Friday, Saturday, Sunday in North America alone. It's at $231 million worldwide. It needs a th- another $30 million to beat the Michael Jackson documentary and become the highest grossing concert film of all time. It will absolutely do that. It's booked 
through theaters through the end of the year. They only had to commit to four weeks of showing the movie. They're like, we'll show it for eight. We'll show it for 10, as long as people keep coming. And if that's not enough, she has the number one album, and she had the number one song with Cruel Summer, and now that is no longer the number one song. It's been replaced by Is It Over Now, another Taylor Swift song from that album, and that is now the number one song in the country, extending her lead in that category that we talked about last week. So Taylor Swift is a very smart person. However, uh, one person pointed out to me that Taylor Swift, not exactly a sex symbol. And he says, isn't that weird? And they may have been sort of trying to diss her, like, see, she's not that sexy. He's not a big fan of Taylor Swift, this person. And I'm like, you know what? I give her complete credit for that. She's never tried to slut herself out, uh, not to sex shame people, but women are forced by the media to like pose in lingerie, pose provocatively, suck on a lot, all this stuff that you see, all these young female music and movie and TV actors, they're sexualized and tarted up from a very early age. People can own their own sexual they can choose to do that, but this industry forces every woman to present themselves as either a Madonna or a whore. And I really credit Taylor with not playing that game. And I really think it's her choice and it's her decision. She started at a young age, but there are a lot of people who say, you know what, I get get rid of that kitty image and I want to be an adult now. I want people to see me as an adult. So they do some outrageous, crazy things to be seen as a sexy, full adult. Taylor always had that girl next door vibe. And even when she dresses in outfits that are pretty cute and sexy, it's more like a high school cheerleader or friendly gal you know, tossing a baton vibe. It's not a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm sexy vibe. And I really, by the way, do you want a decision. great example of that? Mm-hmm. Miley Cyrus is the great example. Well, well of, of like course, somebody. of course, of course. Yeah. And God bless her. She chooses to do that. Britney Spears chooses to pose with a snake, whatever people choose to do. That's cool. There's no sex shaming here, but the a pressure for women to absolutely, you're on the cover of a magazine, you're a serious artist. And they're like, well, don't you want to pose on lingerie on a bed? You know, like really? always always and you see major oscar winning actresses push to do this and i feel like it's not from their choice it's from the pressure of the industry and i think it's very cool that she succeeded so much doing that and maybe she's tapping into a trend isn't she what trend would that be the one you pointed out about sex in the movies and young people oh I see what you're saying. Yes, there was a, a study from UCLA that said Gen Z, which unfortunately I can't remember. It's like you're born here, you're 13 to what, 24. Okay, 13 to 24 year olds. Uh, so I guess my, my, my kids would tell me, we're Gen Z. We're not Gen Alpha or whatever the next gen is. Uh, mm-hmm. And they don't want to see sex on screen. They want pl- nice platonic relationships that are, you know, thought out and, you know, definitely you know there's more deeper meaning to the relationships and they did this study over at ucla and that's what they've discovered so that's it no more sex on tv well now it's one study of course and it didn't say they don't want sex it said they just want less in tv and the movies they don't need to see sex all the time they felt romance was overused that wasn't even a majority of them like 40 percent would like to see more depictions of aromantic and or asexual characters uh 48 sex isn't necessary uh for the majority of tv and movie plots and you can see taylor swift is uh on top of the concert film uh world uh you can see five night at freddy's is just a horror flick with no real sex in it you can see uh moving down the boy and the heron uh, looking down at the movies priscilla um that's a film about a relationship of an older man and younger woman exploring that and i think women would be interested in that it's not that they don't want any sex depiction it's that they want it to feel natural and appropriate rather than always in your face and always just the go-to thing uh, you can see everything from Euphoria, which is in a very sexually explicit or sexually uh, uh, sexually centered TV show that talks a lot about people in high school and what they're doing and how they are. And then you can see other stuff where it's more balanced or like Stranger Things, where they're mostly friends, even though there is an unrequited love in there. It's mostly about people who are banding together as friends. So I think they're just looking for more balance. They don't need sex thrown in their face all the time. That might be something you see as a uh, as a trend or something that that generation will find more appealing and interesting and if you want to appeal to them make the stories they're looking for they don't always need the hallmark ending sometimes they just want friends like the tv show friends except they were all trying to date each other back to the charts (laughs) uh uh, we have Five Nights at Freddy's with 87 million, Killers of the Flower Moon with 31 million, Taylor Swift right behind Marty with 28 million, 
and then a Chinese film, Who's the Suspect? Last week, it had previews, I think, or sneaks, and made about $6 million. This week, it opened wide and made $27 million. It's now at $33 million and counting. Trolls Band Together is still going strong, $21 million. It's at $57 million worldwide, and I guess about to open it. Has it opened in North America? I don't think so. Uh, no, Paw Patrol, the, the Mighty Movie, that's at $16 million this week. The Miyazaki film opened up in some more markets. It was a big hit in Korea last week, and then it opened up in some more places. It made $10 million this week. It's at $82 million in counting, and it opens up here in North America in early December. I'm really looking forward to seeing that. In Japan, another movie opened up. It's Godzilla Minus One. It's an origin story for Godzilla, and it opened to about $8 million and some very strong reviews and numbers. So uh, it looks like it might be an interesting one. Back to China, we've got a couple movies. Only the River Flows, that murder drama, made about $7 million. So did World's Greatest Dad, that film with a very similar plot point to Dear Evan Hansen, the musical. That also made $7 million. In India, the Tamil film Leo Bloody Sweet made another $6 million worldwide. That's at $67 million and counting. It cost about $36 million to make, so they're going to want to get past that $100 million mark for sure. Uh, but Priscilla opened wide. Uh, Sophia Coppola's new movie had a decent opening. It opened to $5 million and some strong reviews. And Eugenio Derbez, the Mexican actor who's mostly known for comedy, starred in a drama called Radical about a school teacher who's inspirational and gives his kids the motivation they need to do great. It's been a big hit in Mexico, and now it's opened up in the U.S. to $4 million. So it's at about $10 million and counting. Scrolling down the list, we got a lot of movies. We made four, three, two million dollars. Are there any stories to tell? I don't think so, except way towards the bottom. Oppenheimer and Barbie still making a million dollars this week. Oppenheimer is at $948 million. Barbie is at $1,442,000,000. I boldly predicted Oppenheimer would hit the $1 billion mark. Uh, it's not going to do it right now. It needs to open up again after the Oscars and perhaps winning Best Picture. And with that momentum, maybe it can get people to come back again. And then another reissue five years or 10 years later, then maybe it'll hit the billion dollar mark. But I'm not sure it's going to do it during this initial run or even with that reissue. I, I had high hopes for it, but it's slowing down quite a bit. That must be, I must say. Um, and it's slowing down big time at the box office, at least in North America. I don't know if this was true worldwide, but it was not a good week at the box office. No, fourth worst weekend of the year. But now this is the weekend after Halloween. It's I assume it's typically a down week. Um, it is, we but also the second worst the weekend the, that it, it was the weekend that Dune was supposed to open up, and that just disappeared. Oh, so. that's why you're making a big deal because Dune wasn't there, right? If you don't release movies, people won't go to the theater. And we've talked a lot about how our box office is down about fifteen percent from what it was over the last couple years before COVID. And guess what? Movies put out are down about 15%. So you release 15% fewer movies, you get 15% less box office. And if Dune had opened up, Dune 2, they would have made a lot of money. I would have gone to see it. So yeah, it was the second, one of the slowest weekends of the year. Um, only $63 million here in North America for Thursday through Sunday. But, uh, you know... What matters is not weekend to weekend or is this weekend slow. You want to have movies coming out all the time. And if they're not releasing movies, people are not going to go. <laughs> There's nothing new to see. But uh, I don't know. The trades are wondering, you know, that next week is the big hope is the Marvels, right? That's opening up next week, isn't it? Yes. Is it Friday or uh, a week from Friday? A week from no, I think it's Friday the twelfth. Whatever. Well, actually, I don't know. Yeah, that's what, that's that's well, the twelfth would be a a, a a Sunday. A Sunday. So it would be the tenth. So no, you yeah, know, it's Friday. It's this Friday. I actually heard somebody. I was at a a uh, seminar over the weekend, uh, uh, and it was filled with medical personnel. And I heard somebody. I, I walked past somebody talking about. Oh no, Marvel's opens, and I was like, wow, there people. I guess are still on the whole Marvel bandwagon there, and. Uh, you know, anecdotally, my my daughter who works at the movie theater said that people were coming out of What Happens Later, the Meg Ryan directed and starring, mm -hmm. uh, I guess it's- Co-written, directed really a, and starring uh, a romantic comedy with her and David Duchovny. That's the thing. I've seen the film. It's not a romantic comedy per se. It's well, a very it's serious a, film. And so mm -hmm. people were like, I want my money back. People were coming out like 30, 40 minutes well, into the movie going, no, no, I want my money they, back. No, and, people did not leave half an hour into the movie. 
Yes. I couldn't believe it either. I said, very you very few people walk out of a movie. I'm sure that's not, you know, a bit, you know, was the trailer wildly misleading? Did they start beating each I'll other say up? This, I mean, the, the trailer makes it look like a meet cute, like a romantic comedy mm-hmm. uh, re-meet cute. Uh, in the end, it's a re-meet but it's about some very serious issues and about but half life an hour choices. into the movie. What's happening half an hour into the movie that would make somebody leave? Isn't oh, you, you realize th- th- this is not going to be a romantic comedy. This is definitely not a romantic. Com- th- this isn't that funny. And uh, I. And, and by the way, there's three people in the movie. It could be a play, and one of the That's people okay. is a voice. That's okay. That's okay. I love. Yeah, I found I found the voice to be fine. Like I thought that it was pulled off quite well. I could see people not being in love with it because it's not what you would expect from that kind of movie going in. You think, oh, romantic comedy, David Duchovny and Meg Ryan and yeah, you know, and the trailer and yeah. That's a good argument for a trailer to accurately reflect the movie. Not only do you not necessarily want to give every beat, though they think people enjoy it more. They're all right, I know what to expect. I know the whole movie. (laughs) And they like that for some insane reason. That's what studios believe. But certainly if you've got a comedy, you don't want them to think it's a drama. And if it's a drama, you do not want them to think it's a comedy. You're not really helping yourself by tricking them into going to the movie. But I doubt there were a million walkouts on the opening weekend. Oh, no, no, Uh, no, I doubt. It it, it made about $1.6 million dollars and good for Meg Ryan to direct her first film. Actually, this is her second film, so... It is. I thought it was her film directing debut. I thought so, too, and then everybody was saying, you know, of course, after directing, I was like, really? Oh, I didn't know she had directed a second or uh, a first film. All right. Who knew? um, Well, there you go. But is it the end? The Marvels, of course, is the sequel to Captain Marvel, and it's trending low. It is not looking like it's going to have a big opening and come anywhere near what the original film did. And people are wondering, is this the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? They're looking at all the chaos that's going on at Marvel and how they are kind of really, you know, uh, struggling right now with a lot of different issues in a lot of different ways. Uh, Do you think they're over it? I don't know. I mean, I, I would have to see. I know that it's very hard internationally in certain territories to sell a film with a female lead. Is that right or proper? No, 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 no. I don't Marvel so. Cinematic Universe. It's got nothing to do with this single movie. Is the Marvel Cinematic oh. Universe. Are people over superhero films? I don't. Yeah, well, I think they might be a little tired of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I think I it's going to go that. back to its core audience of like, you know, comic book geeks you know it's what uh i don't think it's just like westerns you know it's it's run its course i think um yeah meg ryan directed ithaca in 2015 i don't know if that was a uh theatrical release or not it looks like it was but uh, i'd never heard of it good for her her second film um uh that's cool well i i think um you know genres come and go we still make westerns we've got a big hit western on tv and we've got you know kevin costner's western coming out this year next next summer next fall next summer uh, not one yeah two i think two if they slow down on all the um on all the um, uh, you know superhero movies there's still room for them and they'll always be around for sure they've been around for you know 70 80 years now (laughs) you know by the way tv if you want a, a, a clickbait Talk about uh, Marvel and, you know, how Marvel's in trouble. Oh, you know, put that on your on your headline. And, of course, you get a lot of clicks. So that's... that's well, it was a long art. cover story. It was an in-depth story yeah. from the trades. And it was looking at all the many, many myriad problems that Marvel is facing. The special effects issues that they had with the last couple of their movies, which is why yeah. they claim one of their top execs was fired. Uh, the depressed ratings across the board for TV shows. The string of recent movies that have gone down. This isn't just a clickbait story there's a genuine problem at marvel and that they need to rewrite the ship again they had a marvelous success rate and then they have really faltered by trying to do too much too quickly uh pixar had a had a had a trouble period where they were repeating themselves and they said we'll never make sequels and they made a lot of sequels and then they dumped stuff onto streaming and they're trying to write the ship again at disney and pixar and part of that is that this new movie wish hopefully will be very good i have to say i'm happy to hear about the news at walt disney at walt disney animation studios the production workers have voted to unionize with ayatsi i hope all workers unionize and join a union or form a union if there isn't one for them uh i hope disney doesn't 
doesn't see them as the enemy and just goes, great, I'm glad you're unionizing. We'll have someone to talk to. We'll make sure you're all happy. You know, embrace it. But of course, they won't. They'll fight it. Uh, they're also fighting with the Actors Union, the SAG-AFTRA. The studios, like you say, have made their final, final offer. What is Fran Drescher doing? Well, they're reviewing this, and I don't know whose idea it is to always say best and final. There must be some playbook where the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, are saying, you know, if you say best and final, it'll get at least some of the members uh, on the union side to go, oh, this is it. I don't know what they're thinking, but what they're reviewing is mostly having to do with um, success-based residuals. Well, as they're, well they're, as they're AI. taking their time. They're taking their, they're like, this is complicated. You've made movement. We're not re- completely rejecting it right away. We want to take it seriously, but we need a few days to look at this because there's a lot of moving parts. Right. And, and what I've heard uh, from someone inside the negotiating committee is that things were moving in one direction. The uh, eight CEOs, because they all showed up at one point, they were all there at one point. God forbid. Uh, they, Where else they, should they be? <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. They all left uh, and left it in the hands of the lawyers. The lawyers came in and started to tweak the AI verbiage because what their goal is 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 to make it as narrow as humanly possible. Of course, uh, so that they could say like, "Oh no, no, no! We said that this particular AI was, you know, generative AI that shows X right. and Y while doing Z. That's included. Everything else is like out of bounds. So, you know." We, we don't have to worry about that. Well, obviously that favors the studios because then they can just, it, it's like a, you know, a patent loophole. They it's walked like, well, out we the door and the agreement. lawyers, sorry, they walked out the door and the lawyers started to change what was on the contract, you know, what they were offering. That's right, what you're exactly. saying. That the lawyers well, not change it, but they started back. to. Well, changed it. You said they changed. They were changing the wording. That's changing it. You had something on payments. Well, let's add this letter. I want to add an or here or an uh, uh, unless over there. That's changing it. So that the studio heads walked out with one thing on the paper, and then you're claiming your sources. The lawyers stepped in and said, "Well, we didn't really mean this. We meant that." Well, no, they're just trying to make it very, very specific. Whereas. Whereas the, uh, when the CEOs left, it was very broad. It was just like generative AI. Now it's like, no, generative AI that does the following. Whereas that really narrows it down to such an extent that the studios then have a lot of wiggle room to do other things that, and that's why, of course, the lawyers are paid what? why they're paid. So in a way, no, they're that's just not, narrowing they're not paid. They're paid to do the, the wishes of the CEOs. So if the CEOs want to make it really narrow, they should say that you're making it sound like the lawyers are acting on their own and doing something the CEOs didn't know about or wouldn't have endorsed. If they're just doing what the CEOs got nothing to do with the CEOs are in the room or not, they didn't suddenly change what the CEOs were offering. They were just making clear what the CEOs were offering in the first place. So the CEOs well, get would, to walk it, away when it's all nice and happy. And then the lawyers go, well, you know, to be clear, we need to add this word here and that word there and, and nip, nip, tuck, tucks, you know, slap away and narrow it and narrow it and make it less appealing. Well, I'll say this. In, in my experience, it, when negotiations like this, the, the CEOs, will, you know, they're not in the weeds. Then the lawyers come in and rightfully, by the way, will say, hey, you know, you got to consider X, Y, and Z. You can't just like leave it at this broad thing. And the CEOs usually then go, oh yeah, no, I didn't think about that. Yeah, keep going. You know, because they're not experts on all this. So they just listen to the lawyers, which it makes sense. No, I'm, 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 we're saying two what, different things. You think things. the CEOs You're are like, saying hey, the CEOs don't I'm, know what I'm, they're talking about and the lawyers are telling them, look, idiot. Or, or the CEOs are letting the lawyers do the dirty work, which is what I say. The CEOs are just letting the lawyers do the dirty work of saying, well, you know, actually, we really need this. And they're, they're not stupid morons who don't understand that they would want their contract to be as narrow as possible. They've always wanted it to be as narrow as possible. So they have as much rights to do whatever they want when they want. That's what they've, they've started out from that very position. Uh, we'll get and then we can use it forever. Well, okay, only for this franchise. Okay, only, you know, they're, there's, they're letting the lawyers do the dirty saying, work. I, you're saying the, the lawyers, the, the CEOs are stupid and don't know what they're talking about, but the lawyers no, do. And I have to go, listen, you moron, you can't have that in there because then they're going to get to have all these rights. Well, I think it's the e- CEOs are relying on, on as, they, as they should. They don't know everything, the CEOs. They're they not don't rely going on lawyers. Saying- the lawyers do what you want them to do. The lawyers work for the CEOs, period. 
They do not. They're not telling the CEOs what to do. They are following the CEO's orders. Either the CEOs wanted to look nice and walk away and be friendly and smile and then let the lawyers do the dirty work, or they don't really understand what they were agreeing to and the lawyers have to save their ass. Neither one is a very good look for the CEOs. Nonetheless, you're That's speculating true. about something one stupid person said who's in the room, and I'm sure there's a lot more than just AI wording that's going on here. The big thing is the actors did not reject it out of hand, but if you're a studio and you want to negotiate, leading off by saying, we're not going to do anything else. This is our final offer is but they did the same thing and wrong. And they do it every time, but it's obnoxious. There's like, this is our final, final, it's our last and best offer. Well, of course, it's your best offer. You were forced to make a better offer than the last one you offered. Every time you make an offer, it's your best offer. So it's redundant and stupid and insulting. And it's gamesmanship of which they've sucked at the entire time. And they're shooting themselves in the foot, costing themselves far more in lost production, lost movies being released. That's true. Empty TV schedules than if they had just agreed to what the actors asked for, you know, nine months ago and the writers if they'd agreed to it back then they would have saved themselves hundreds of millions if not a billion dollars in lost revenue and production and it would not cost them nearly as much as what they're being forced to pay out to the actors and the writers well they did so the good news is that they have uh they're no longer arguing about uh pay raises so that apparently is now settled well we don't what know that that's what your source is telling you yeah we don't know that, that for sure we, we don't know that. The lawyers uh, might have stepped in and point, changed the wording. <laughs> well, that's true, too. Uh, the sticking point seems to be, well, and by the way, who knows where AI is going to be in five minutes, let alone, you know, five years. Uh, that's why you need to make a rule. And that's why you need to make agreements now and keep it flexible and open so that the actors aren't screwed over for the next 50 years. That's exactly why you need wording now, because you don't know what it's going to be capable of five years from now. That's why you want broad wording to make sure you're not screwed over by the, Oh, look, well, you didn't tell us we couldn't do this. <laughs> it's like, you can't do anything without our consent and our compensation period. Yeah, I don't know why it's like, yeah, it, I do like the fact that, you, like you said, the best last and final that they actually have come. It's like such a joke at this point that they've come mm -hmm. up with an acronym for it. They're like, yes, it's your BLAFO offer. Best last <laughs> and final offer. <laughs> it's like, come on. Like, is there like some place like in an instruction manual on how to negotiate with unions that says you have to say those words because you've said it. 19 times and none of them were your best last or final offer. So well, why say it at all? Well, with no new scripted television in prime time, basically, or on cable right now, not a lot of it, if there's any, uh, people are turning to streaming and they are watching Suits, which again, uh, was watched by 1.2 billion minutes about a month ago, uh, as it airs on Netflix and Peacock and reruns. Same with Grey's Anatomy. The new season of Grey's Anatomy should have started by now. Instead, people watched it and gorged on it on Netflix, because that's where they can go to watch their favorite show until new episodes are made. They're also watching Elemental, the Disney film, the Pixar film that was in theaters and uh, ended up doing pretty good commercially, even though critics sort of shrugged at it. Haunted Mansion, another Disney film, was on top of the movie charts, almost a billion minutes for that flick. And people couldn't see Dune 2, so they're watching Dune 1. The 2021 Dune film is on, of course, HBO Max and Netflix. I'm not sure why it's a must have been an output deal, but people are re-watching Dune going, gee, I wish I could watch the sequel. <laughs> Actually, they, I think they're calling it the HBO Maxification of Netflix. <laughs> like because everything on HBO Max, well now Max, uh, or the Maxification of Netflix, because everything is, you know, they look. David Zaslav is trying to find money, and one way to do that is to license your content. So he's licensing it to Netflix. There you go. I think that's a big deal. Oh wait. Oh hold on. I think you said big deal. You know, I have to say, there's a little bit of a delay between us uh, today, Michael, and I have a feeling it's. Uh, there it's, always it's, is. I have a feeling that the CEOs are, they don't like us. And they're, that Comcast guy, he's over there pressing the button to try and he hates you. mess up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But if you said big deal, then it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop Hour weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, let me ask you, Michael, is Broadway back? Yes. Well, Broadway, by the way, does certainly think so. Michael and I just headed to Broadway to see a very good revival of Merrily We Roll Along. And the spring calendar is suddenly chock 
full of new shows, hoping to win back audiences and a few Tonys along the way. This fall, we still have Barry Manilow's long gestating musical harmony and the musical about kids on the spectrum preparing for the prom. That one is called How to Dance in Ohio. And uh, of course, there's a revival of Spamala. I didn't realize that when I was looking at that marquee, I was like, How to Dance in Ohio? What, what show is that? I didn't realize That's it had no Based on a documentary film about uh, kids on the spectrum preparing for prom. Uh, and now it's a heartwarming show that played in the heartland and is now coming to Broadway, hoping to be like this year's Come From Away. Well, uh, of course, we're focusing on musicals here. But early 2024, the floodgates begin to open. We've got revivals of The Who's Tommy, The Wiz, and The Red Hot Cabaret from the United Kingdom. An original musical set to debut include uh, Eden Espinosa starring in, you're going to have to help me here, Lempika? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, uh, I don't know. It's I a musical so. about the Polish painter. Okay. Uh, that's a little heady and a long shot, but coming from the public, the public theater, we have Suffs and that's spelled S-U-F-F-S. It's a musical about the suffragette movement that enjoyed rave reviews and naturally hopes for a Hamilton-like transfer to the big time. When I read through this, I was like, Suffs, yeah, that'll never work. Look, you may as well make a musical about Hamilton. I mean, come on. No, no way some historical musical will ever work. In any case, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, by the way, here come the big name pre-sold properties that are also coming to Broadway. A musical built around the songs of Huey Lewis in the news. It's called The Heart of Rock and Roll because you know it really is hip to be square. A musical version of the Ryan Gosling Weepy the Notebook. A musical version of the best-selling novel Water for Elephants, a musical version of the alcoholic drama, Days of Wine and Roses, and a musical version of The Outsiders, Stay Golden, Broadway. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Do you know what Stay Golden, why that's there? The Outsiders. Ah, well done, well done. Kelly O'Hara stars in the Days of Wine and Roses. Um, that got a lot of acclaim off Broadway. And one of my favorite theater troops slash bands is Pigpen Theater Company. They've got a number of delightful shows they did on their own. They were working on a musical version of The Tale of Despero, and they also are deeply involved. In, they did all the songs for Water for Elephants. And so that's an interesting show. I definitely have my eye on that one because of their involvement. So I have to say, it's just been like, wow, Broadway's convinced people are going to come back because that's a lot of shows looking for people to plunk their money down. And Huey Lewis, he will have two shows with his songs on Broadway, Back to the Future and The Heart of Rock and Roll. Who saw that coming? Nobody. That's the power of love, baby. <laughs> will you go see any of those or any of those interest you? I have to say, back in the day, I was a big Huey Lewis and the News fan. I love uh, mm -hmm. kind of rockabilly, and that's kind of what he's known for, you know, the harmonica, you know. I know, I know you're going to say he's not rockabilly. He's yeah, don't, rock say, don't say rockabilly. That's Brian Setzer and the Stray Cats. Yeah, he's not rockabilly, yeah. but he's, he's a good old-fashioned old rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, teased mercilessly, I might add, for being a Huey Lewis and the News fan back in the day. Uh, but My very I first CD was Huey Lewis and the News Sports. The second oh, CD yes. I ever bought was Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, but I can't claim that that was number two. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I, I was never teased for being a Britney Spears fan. That is for sure. And Britney Spears is back on top of the charts. Now, you could have, I would have guessed that maybe one day I might say that about, you know, Britney Spears, you know, releasing a new album. But no, she's not on the top of the pop charts. This time, she's on top of the bestseller list. That's right. Her memoir, The Woman in Me, has made news for days with the juicy revelations. And now it's making news for selling a lot of copies. Its publisher said the memoir sold 1.1 million copies in all formats during its first week. And they expect it to do strongly throughout the holiday season. Great news for Simon & Schuster. Not as good news for Paramount, which just sold Simon & Schuster, but still, big deal or big whoop. Well, you know, uh, publishing has been having a bad couple of months, uh, so I have to say, you know, this is good news, but publishing is just like the movies. If you don't release, I was just double checking that Gallery Books was Simon & Schuster, and you're right, it is, so good for you. I was worried when you threw that in about Simon & Schuster. Yeah, no, it's a division of Simon & Schuster. But anyway, they need hits, just like the movies. If you don't put out books, now they always put out tons of books, but you need books to turn into hits, and that's what we've got here. From what I hear, you definitely want to check out the audiobook narrated 
narrated by Michelle Williams. That's apparently the sweet spot here. Uh, she just does a great job narrating this book. It sounds like one of those fascinating things where she really elevated the material. Um, you know, if you're a Britney Spears fan, you care. Uh, but even if you're not, maybe you like Michelle Williams and you want to check that out. Uh, but it's not all good news in publishing. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is being sued by his conservative press company, his publisher, for millions of dollars since he has now admitted to lying about the election. He printed and said that in his book that the election was stolen and talked Talked about it, but his contract, you're not allowed to lie. <laughs> so unlike Fox News, clearly his publisher doesn't fancy being sued for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. So they are pulping the book and they're demanding back their $350,000 advance and suing him for at least $1 million in damages. That means this conservative publishing house, which specializes in, you know, conservative authors, could have a rocky road in the future. <laughs> you know, who else is one? I think they're doing the smart thing financially. Said, so, dear God, help you. You don't want to be sued for repeating his lies. So what choice do they do? I mean, what choice do they have? But that could make it very hard to sign your next uh, contract. Hmm. We'll have to see what yeah, happens Yeah, well, and this is exactly why, you know, this is where lawyers come in and, you know, and, and I don't know what the, the deal is here. I can't, but- yeah. Well, I this think they mess. said if we don't if we don't pulp this book, we could get sued by I assume that there are mentions of election voting machine companies in the book. You know, that's the key, one of the key parts of the the lie that the election was stolen, which of course it wasn't. There was no evidence for it whatsoever, and he now reportedly has admitted on stand that he knew there was no evidence. He's never seen any evidence that the election was stolen or could have been swayed in any way, and he and Trump both knew that it was a lie. So they're like, "Wow, that's not what you said in your book." Before we get sued, we got to pull it from the shelves, pulp it, and sue you to get our money back because we're screwed if we don't. Well, and even if they decide to not go through with the uh, the lawsuit against Meadows, they have to at least file it and make it look, you know, if anybody goes after them, they could say, no, look, we were, we were hoodwinked too. Look, we're suing him. You know, that's- Well, I, I can't think of any reason why they wouldn't want their advance back. You know, yeah, they well, paid him $350,000. Now they have to trash the book because he broke his contract and lied. And, you know, he's undercutting his own book. Uh, by testifying and uh, reportedly claiming that he knew it was a lie all along. So, you know, I'd want my money back, but it does make it perhaps more challenging for them to sign other conservative authors in the future. But what choice do you have? You don't want to get sued for a ton of money by these companies. It, 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 you know, I just think it would be a lot easier if everybody just went to a theme park. <laughs> I get you. Keep going. And the big keep getting bigger. Okay, that's pretty much what this story is about. Uh, and it is about theme parks. In a merger that's roiling the theme park business, Six Flags, which is a big theme park uh, operator here in North America, and Cedar Fair, they are merging into a new and bigger theme park company. Now, you'd think this is new and bigger, but in any case, they hope they can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Disney and Universal's attractions. The combined business will be an $8 billion player. That also sounds like a lot of money. Bigger than, you know, other small competitors like Legoland, Hershey, SeaWorld, Dollywood, for instance. Together, the new Six Flags will boast 27 theme parks, 15 water parks, hotels, resorts, and, and, and the like. More importantly, they say the new company will feature rides and attractions built around both DC characters and the Peanuts gang, the two main IPs in their portfolios. Now, here's why I was kind of making fun of how big they are. Their combined worth is $8 billion. Okay, that sounds like a lot of money to me. But It Disney, is a lot of money. It is, yeah. Disney is committed to spending $60 billion in the next decade to expand its empire. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well... Disney is you know, by far the biggest. Uh, last year, Disney reportedly, all its theme parks in North America, I think, I don't think it's worldwide, maybe it is worldwide, had 150 million visitors. Universal wow. had 50 million visitors. But if you combine the emissions for Six Flags and Cedar Fair, they had about 45 million visitors. It also helps huh. them geographically because they're going to have more sites in the South as a combined company that can stay open year round and they can expand there and they have stronger IP. They can add peanuts to the Six Flags parks and DC characters to the Cedar Fair parks and make both of them better. So, you know, they're getting close to Universal in terms of attendance. So they've got some, you know, bragging rights that certainly the big are getting bigger. After 21 seasons and declining ratings, 
The Dr. Phil syndicated show still drew 2 million viewers a day, making it one of the top daytime strips. Still, 21 years is a long time, and Dr. Phil announced he was calling it a day. His studio plans to sell reruns with new wraparound material updating the cases, all of it anchored by Dr. Phil. The same happened with Judge Judy, though in Dr. Phil's case, CBS insisted it was Dr. Phil who pulled the plug, not not the actual uh, production company. Maybe former staffers accusing him of an abusive workplace and repeated accusations of manipulation of guests were too much. After all, he hosts two podcasts and produces the primetime drama, So Help Me Todd, which just got renewed for a second season. So why bother? Maybe he wants to make it easy and wait. Dr. Phil announced he's now wait launching a new cable channel, not a new show, but a new channel and not a fast channel either. You know, the, like you and I, Michael, we could have a fast channel if we wanted to. Sure. It will launch. And yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk about it every day. Uh, this new channel will launch in February, anchored by the primetime series called Cleverly Enough, Dr. Phil primetime. It's going to have a national distribution, or so they say, multiple hours of original programming and live news broadcasts. News, okay? News. The primetime show is modeled after his daytime talk show, so in an era of streaming, when everyone else is zigging, Dr. Phil is zagging, he's going to linear television, to which I say, I thought by now, by the time I got to this sentence, we would have another news update saying that Charter and Comcast and all these cable operators have have said that they are blacking out this new channel and not, they're not going to pay for it big deal or big whoop um it's uh it's a it's a big whoop i think i mean it's just a little bonkers i mean i have to say that dog won't hunt i mean it's a bizarre and they say multiple hours of original programming well that means two hours <laughs> you could be claiming two or three hours news they're going to have a news program like how are they going to fund or syndicate or have the ability to launch a news program? That's an entirely different thing. I thought maybe his primetime show would be some sort of Fox News type thing where he'd be spouting opinion on the stuff of the day, but they insist, no, it's just like his daytime show. So I don't know what's going on here. His daytime show combined with news? Like there's some need for another 20, a news channel, but like one hour a day or something. I think what else will be on this channel for 24 hours a day? He doesn't have the rights to the old seasons. CBS still has them and is repackaging them and selling them in syndication. So it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Uh, but he has a big studio in Texas. He's got staffers who've come and followed him there. Some are loyal, even though others said it was a bad work environment. And uh, it's, can you build an entire channel around one show? I don't think so, I but don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Well, think about it. You know, uh, he got, was brought into television by Oprah Winfrey, and he's like, well, she has her own network. I'm going to have my own network. But, uh, but I just got this was, email wasn't, yeah. from uh, David Zasloff. He, he wants us to tell uh, Dr. Phil that news accounts for 10% of Warner Brother Discovery's revenue and 90% of David Zasloff's headaches. So <laughs> good luck with the news. <laughs> Uh, you know, somebody uh, we uh, come to know and love, Michael, is Live Nation. And you know what they're asking? They're asking COVID. What, what COVID? Yeah, certainly, concert going is back and bigger than ever, at least for Live Nation. People moan about ticket surcharges and high prices, but they're paying them. The concert promoter had its biggest quarter ever and is on a record-setting pace for grosses and ticket sales. Its Ticketmaster division sold more than 257 million, get this, I love this phrase, fee-bearing tickets, $257 million worth of fee-bearing tickets to events, which by the way, I like to call that every ticket they sell is a fee-bearing ticket. I don't know one ticket they sell. There must not be some they don't, but I don't know. <laughs> I know. And by the way, in Live, Live Nation's third quarter, typically the strongest in the fiscal year grossed more than $8 billion in revenue. That, hey, like, they could buy a like, theme park. I was just, <laughs> you stole my punchline. <laughs> uh, that Taylor Swift fiasco, those congressional hearings and the ongoing investigation by the Justice Department. You know, hey, what's that between friends? They're just mere bumps in the road, apparently. Rock on. And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal in terms of getting back to business, in terms of concert going and a live events. So that's great. Uh, they say the Justice Department is investigating stuff like 
venue exclusivity, the practice of all-in pricing, and secondary market ticket sales, aka scalping, that goes, uh, you know, takes part on their website <laughs> with the with the permission of everybody involved. So they say it's not attacking the fundamentals of their business or their monopolies. Well, they didn't use the word monopoly, of course, but I did. If I purchased a ticket in 1969 to Woodstock, it would have cost me how much, Michael? Uh, I don't know. Uh, five five dollars. Oh, really? Five dollars. Five dollars. That's what it costs. (laughs) Yeah. Today, that ticket adjusted for inflation would cost $41.93. Okay. Mm -hmm. An inflation rate over that period of time, 738%. Someone needs to call Taylor Swift and let her know that her rate of inflation is off the charts because it's like absurdly. She doesn't need your advice. She's doing just fine. Yeah, but I remember in uh, 1989 when the Rolling Stones played their big steel wheels tour and everybody was like, can you believe they're charging $35 for a ticket? No, they were charging more than that. No, $35. I I went to see them at Shea Stadium at the time for $35 and everybody was Where was your seat? Well, with Shea Stadium, where was any seat? Uh, Well, well, there were good seats. Were they not pricier if you were down on the floor? I don't know. I'd have to double check that, but it, it I'm was like guessing a, you paid a little bit more. I'm sure you probably did, but not like hundreds of dollars. The big uh, headline well, yes, news that was that was 40 years ago. So yes, the, the, things things have moved on. That was 1989. Thanks for That's reminding me. 35 years ago, <laughs> I saw them when I was four years old. <laughs> they grossed $175 million on that tour. It was one of the highest grossing tours of all time. Um, but uh, I don't see any quick numbers on the average ticket price or, or what the range of ticket prices was. Something Wikipedia should get onto. By the way, um, you know, yeah, Taylor Swift said that she uh, will not be giving Polestar any information. Usually what happens, like right now, Polestar doesn't have any info. That's somewhat common for, for tours where they'll, at the very end, after it's all over, they'll give the information to, to Polestar and it'll come out one big giant number um, instead of like on a nightly basis or on a weekly or monthly basis. She has said, you will never know how much I made off this tour. I'm never go- We are never getting back together. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> so, so Polestar, yeah, they're just guessing at this point how much Why is she angry at Polestar? I have no idea. Oh, you mean she's not. She just doesn't want to share the info. She exactly. just doesn't want to rub it into people's faces how much money she's making. Yeah. Probably. That sounds a lot like uh, a lot of inside information. Absolutely. Which means it must be time for Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And I'll tell you, if you are a musician, this story affects you because Spotify is reportedly changing how it pays out royalties, according to the invaluable music industry website, Music Business Worldwide. Now, you might be asking, why? Now, Michael and I already know this because we report on it week after week. This is really to, det- it's to deter fraud, demonetize the flood of new music that almost no one listens to, and frustrate those gaming the system, especially using artificial intelligence. Now, here's the thing, though. None of this changes. None of these changes that I just kind of talked about, none of them will alter the amount of money paid out in royalties each year. So Spotify will still be on the hook, but Spotify is hoping more will get to legit artists like Michael and I for mm-hmm. putting our podcast on the, because we, we, we podcast don't make do not get royalties. Yeah, I found that out the hard way, but here's what they are doing. Michael, why don't you tell us what they are doing? Well, first, there's no money for songs that barely get any plays. Spotify is not going to pay anything out to tracks that barely register. You'll have to get at least some plays, maybe 200 spins a year before a song gets any money. Now, what that means is uh, they're looking at hundreds of thousands of tracks being added to Spotify. Literally 100,000 plus tracks every single day are added to Spotify and the other major streaming services. Uh, Now, the song scoring less than 200 plays a year, you think, well, how much money could they be getting? Well, uh, this year they're going to suck up about $40 million in revenue. And guess what? Those tiny payments for songs that barely get any plays, those micro payments don't even go to the acts who generally have to generate X amount of dollars before 
before they can cash out. So it's like if you're no, an they Amazon, go to the record companies. No, they don't. A lot of them don't have record companies or they're tiny people. They go to the distributor who are just, you know, I'm a nobody act. I go through a third party distributor. They get my stuff on all the services. They get the money and it sits in a bank account until I make enough money. I can't cash out anything. If I have to or, or earn like $10, say, in, in revenue before I can cash, they don't want me cashing out every five cents because it would cost them money. So I have to earn, right. say, $10 in revenue. So I generate 60 cents. It just sits in their bank account. They don't get to take it away from me, maybe eventually, but they get to have the interest on it and all that money. They sit on that pile of money, so I'm not even getting it. So it's not really even, you know, screwing over the tiny, tiny people. It just says, look, tens of millions of dollars, and it's only going to get worse as being sitting, you know, in bank accounts elsewhere, not even going to those acts. So, you know, you got to get a couple hundred plays. That's really not a big ask, is it? No, not at all. No, I mean, it makes, it, it makes sense. And it, it really is uh, meant to thwart all of these people who are just throwing up stuff for no reason. The second thing is if Spotify sees any fraud, and this is kind of interesting to me, it will stop payments for the song and penalize the distributor. So in a way, in my opinion, they're turning distributors into the police here. Well, they need to because distributors paid no penalty for offering up stuff that they knew was BS, stuff that's either trying to game the system by getting fake spins in order to generate income and you know, do it that way, or people who are looking to launder money. There's a lot of money laundering apparently going on. You set up you know, fake songs that you own, you pay to generate royalties, and then you get the money out. Uh, but you, know, you pay a million dollars, you get $900,000 back in royalties, you're okay, because now that money is legitimate. You have legitimate money because you posted a song and it generated income. Income, and now you have legitimate income rather than from your cocaine sales or whatever it may be. So wait, wait, they're trying to go after work? money laundering. Well, we've talked about this before. You're a gangster, you're a criminal organization, you have a pile of money and you want to wash it. You want to money launder it so you can claim it legitimately. You can't say, oh, I've made a million dollars in drug sales. So you set up fake accounts, you set up fake music, you post it online, you pay to get plays for that music, and then you collect the royalties from it. No one's actually listening to that music, but you you know, you know, lose a fee. You, maybe you, you spend a million dollars to get back $900,000 because everybody takes their cut. But now you have $900,000 in legitimate income from music. You, you created music, you posted it online, and now you've collected royalties. So now that money is legitimate. So the money you gained illegally, you have now laundered, and it is now legitimate money. That is actually happening on streaming services around the world. And there are also it's people official who are then, just, Michael. We're in the wrong business. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And, and, and the problem before was that if people were doing fraudulent stuff, they would drop the hammer and stop it. But the distributor could just look the other way and pretend everything was fine. They never paid a price. Now Spotify is saying, you need to know better. You know when this BS is going on. Or you're a distributor who does nothing but traffic in, in scams. And therefore, we're going to drop the hammer on you as well. Well, the third thing that uh, Spotify is doing, you know, those non-music tracks. I mean, think white noise or nature sounds like rain or surf or birds chirping. They will have to be at least four minutes long. No, no more of this like looping, you know, 25 seconds, 30 seconds stuff. Uh, right. If you look that. online, you'll see like white noise that people like as a background or birds chirping or, or surf on the, on the shore. You'll see like a thousand tracks are like 31 seconds long. There was a minimum amount of length they had to be. And it was apparently 31 seconds. And so... You get every play you get for a track, you get a minimum amount of money. So if you have a four minute song or a 10 minute song or a two minute song, just getting a play gives you, you know, a, a tenth of a penny. I'm making up the number, but say a penny, you get a penny every time it's streamed. Well, guess what? If you could split that four minute song up into eight separate parts, well, you'd get a tenth a penny for every single section of the song. And that's what they were doing. Instead of creating a, a 60 minute, you know, nature thing, they would create 31 second tracks that seamlessly bled into one another. So you're just playing background noise, white noise or oceans on the surf. And instead of a four minute track, you were hearing eight tracks. And so they've just raised the bar and you think, well, that's not a big deal. But guess what? It makes a big difference. They'll now get only one eighth of the royalties they would have otherwise under a system now where tracks have to be for white noise at least four minutes long. They used to get away with 30 second tracks. Now they need four minute tracks and therefore 
They won't get a penny for all those eight. They'll only get one penny for the four minute track. So it's a way of chipping away what they're going. You think, well, how much of a difference can this make? When they add well, it up, Spotify, Spotify estimates it'll be about a billion dollars a year instead of going to people who are fraudulent or scammers or gaming the system. It will be going to actual artists who are getting real streams and are not trying to, you know, break the law. It's pretty remarkable how much fraud was taking place on this platform. Yeah. It is. Not this platform. It's not Spotify. It's all the streamers. It's not a Spotify-specific problem. This is what Spotify is doing to tackling the problem that all the streamers face. And others, I imagine, will follow in their wake. Of course, I believe it was Apple who said, you know what, we're just ignoring... Uh, white noise entirely. All those non-music tracks, they're not getting any royalties. We're treating you like podcasts. We're saying you're not creating content. You're just slapping up sound effects and you're not going to make any money off of it, which I think is Wait actually the way to go. Yeah, I'm Listen, down with that. That's mm -hmm. treating us like podcasts. How dare they? <laughs> right. I resemble I that say, remark. <laughs> I have to say, I have at times played uh, an album called Environments. There's like 10 or 20 of these albums. They went out into nature in the 70s or 60s, hippies, and recorded rain in the rainforest. They recorded, you know, surf crashing on the beach. They recorded thunderstorms, the sounds of crickets in the forest and all that sort of stuff. And they created these albums called Environments. People go, oh my God, man, this is so awesome. You put on this album and this vinyl and you can hear birds chirping for half an hour aside. They did that and they're available on all the streamers, but they're legitimate albums from decades ago. I sometimes play like the little soft rainforest thing when I want to go to sleep. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think... You look at that, and that's an hour-long track, though, or a 40-minute track where they do the whole thing. It's very legitimate. And so perhaps they could still get money, but I can see how Apple would say, or one of the other streamers said, look, this is all BS. All these, anybody can make major noise. We don't care. It's all artificially created anyway. You're not going to make any money. I actually think maybe Spotify should have gone that way on the non-music tracks, but at least they're, you know, cracking down. So it's going to make a big difference, but it's not a problem just for Spotify. It's a problem for everyone. And one problem we have is that people keep dying. But this week, uh, we didn't have anything interesting to say about most of them. There's always a lot of important people and people who did great work who die. This week, we're going to focus on one person. It's photographer and trailblazer, Helen Marcus, who died at 97. God bless her. My mom is 94. She'll be 95 in February. Send in your birthday cards now. Any woman, of course, making her way in most professions was a trailblazer almost by definition back in the day for someone who's 97 years old. But Helen Marcus really was. She began as a producer under theater's Hal Prince. Theater lovers know his name. And then she joined TV's Goodson Todman Productions. I'm a TV dork, and I recognize that name, too. They made game shows like What's My Line and To Tell the Truth. Now, her hobby was photography, but she became so good at it, she quit her job and began doing it full-time and became a huge success. Uh, weirdly and interestingly, lots of newspapers, lots of magazines, but also book cover jackets. She shot many celebrities, including author photos for Tom Wolfe, Jersey Kaczynski, who was the sexiest person she ever photographed, that's what she said, as well as Kitty Carlisle, Merv Griffin, Norman Mailer, and countless, countless others. She also did a ton of magazine covers and newspaper profiles. She became known for her distinctive black and white images. She was one of the first artists invited to China during the Cultural Revolution of the 70s, amidst Nixon's ping-pong diplomacy. She also championed other photographers and founded the New York chapter of the American Society of Magazine Photographers back when most professional photographers were men, and she taught the art at various New York institutions like Tisch when Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize and Sweden wanted a photo to use as inspiration for a postage stamp Morrison sent them to Marcus. And if you want to see the results, you can go to our notes. You know, I have to say that that stamp and that picture of uh, Toni Morrison is, is very famous. Um, yeah. And when I saw this, because you told me yesterday, hey, good news, nobody died. We're not going to do obituaries <laughs> tomorrow. And, and I thought, oh, and then like literally like maybe 15 minutes later, I saw this obituary for Helen Marcus and I thought, well, well, Will Michael include this? I bet you he will. And sure enough, there it was. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Well, you know what? Find out who he's going to include next week 
by subscribing to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, where we will not get paid, by the way. Uh, Anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can find us and please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do that. Uh, Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, those ways to subscribe to us, ways to contact us, they can be found on showbizsandbox.com. Now, you can contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can follow us on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. And I guess I should be, I keep forgetting to call it X. Uh, It's just killing me, this this name change. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. Uh, The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They have a new single out, Mother Nature. We discussed it last week. Uh, And you know what? All of this information on our website, ShowbizSandbox.com. MGMT has a website. Their website is WhoIsMGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. Michael, what is it this week? This week it's, uh, <laughs> I got nothing, rollingstones.com. I'm looking it up. Twenty-eight fifty was the ticket price announced for the Rolling Stones tour, but their opening acts included either Living Color or Guns N' Roses. And you're bitching about twenty-eight fifty? <laughs> no, I'm saying that back then it was like a big deal. I understand. Wow. It was a huge amount of money. But uh, yeah, you know, there you go. I mean, come on. You got to see in you got to see Living Color or Guns N' Roses. That's that's a pretty good show. I saw in Living Color, in fact. Yeah. Living Color, not in Living Color. Living Color. Yeah, that's true. In Living Color was the was the show. Living Color was the great rock band, like kind of a mashup band. No, 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 they're rock and roll, rock and roll. Okay, well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on rollingstones.com, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com, where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. (laughs) 